This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. everybody, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. Happy February, everyone. Congratulations for surviving the rip in the space-time continuum that is Groundhog Day and making it to February 3rd. February is my birth month, so you guys can feel free to send me happy birthday wishes all month long. I turned 45 this year. But I don't really feel that old, except in my lower back. I think that's probably at least 80. But enough about me. Let's talk about what's important. Baseball's spring training begins later this month. And with it, the Baltimore Orioles begin their march to the 2023 World Series. Let's go, O's. Let's go, O's. But enough about the next dynasty in Major League Baseball. Let's talk about today's book, which you're all here for. It's Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mindor, a throwback by author Matthew Stover, published in 2008, but an homage to the Han Solo adventures published in the late 1970s. It's a story of adventure, darkness, and the power of myth. But did the events of the book actually happen? That's for you to answer. But before we get to that, it's listener question time. I have two emails today. The first message comes from Dallin, who wrote a very nice email, but I had to trim it down a little bit for today's show. Dallin says, Hello, Aaron. Thank you so much for doing your podcast. I love listening. You're the reason I got into reading Legends books, and I've also started reading the canon comics, which I'm really excited to get into. First, I wanted to respond to something you said in your episode about Cloak of Deception, about what if Qui-Gon had lived if he would have obsessed over making Anakin become the Chosen One. I think you're right. I don't know if you've read the canon novel Master and Apprentice, but in the book, Qui-Gon receives a Force vision that something is going to go wrong on his mission. And after receiving this vision, he becomes so obsessed with preventing it from happening that he nearly ruins his relationship with Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think that had Qui-Gon lived to train Anakin... He may have pushed so hard for Annie to be perfect that it would have created a wedge between them. But I do think that Qui-Gon was wise enough to realize his errors and become a more nurturing and supportive master rather than pushing Annie so hard. Well, you might be right, Dallin. I do think Qui-Gon would have been a more appropriate master for Anakin than Obi-Wan, but I still see it ending the same. I think as long as Palpatine could manipulate Anakin's feelings for Padme and his mother, that Anakin would eventually have fallen to the dark side. Now on to Dallin's questions. He says, I recently reread the canon novel Tarkin and was struck by how similar he, Thrawn, and Vader are. Do you think that if they had worked together more regularly, 
perhaps even comprising Palpatine's most inner circle, that things would have turned out differently for the Empire? Or do you think the Rebellion still would have won? Also, who do you think would win in a 1v1 match between Thrawn or Tarkin? If both were in their prime, I think Tarkin would narrowly come out on top because of his training on the Carrion Plains. What do you think? Well, thank you very much for the questions, Dallin. Let me answer the second one first. I think it depends on what you consider a 1v1 matchup. If you're just talking about the two of them in a fight, I could see either of them winning when they were at their peak. Personally, I would give the slight advantage to Thrawn, but I do think it would be fairly even. If you're talking about the two facing off in a military-slash-political battle, I think Thrawn would eventually figure out a way to defeat Tarkin, even if Tarkin had controlled the Death Star. Now to Dallin's first question. If Tarkin, Thrawn, and Vader had worked together more, would things have turned out differently for the Empire? Perhaps. But I don't think it's plausible. I don't think they would have worked well together at all. I mean, all three want the appreciation and the recognition of the Emperor on some level, particularly Vader and Tarkin. And you have to remember, that's what Palpatine wanted in his underlings. He encouraged the Imperial Brass to be ambitious, to be conniving, to be ruthless, in trying to curry his favor. Now, there's no denying the three are effective at what they do. Tarkin is a political mastermind. Thrawn is a military genius. And Vader handles anything that the Emperor throws his way. Except, of course, that pesky little Luke and Leia problem. But I'm sure that'll end up working itself out. Vader will be fine. Anyway, Dallin, you could be right in theory. If the three had worked together more, things could have worked differently for the Empire. But I just don't think they would have been able to work together at all. Thank you very much for the email, Dallin. Today's second email comes from Ambry, who says, I just started listening to your podcast. I'd like to know more about clone commandos. And since I don't know much about Star Wars books, do you know of any clone commando books? Also, I have always wondered if the lightsaber colors have a specific meaning. And Ambry signs it, a fellow Star Wars nerd. Well, thank you very much for the email, fellow Star Wars nerd. Yes, there are some clone-centric stories in Legends. I don't know all of the comics, but the most famous stories are probably the Republic Commando series of books, which feature the members of Omega Squad, Darman, Niner, Aten, and Phi. It's a series of five novels that begin when they're members of the Grand Army of the Republic and continue through Order 66 and the beginning of the Galactic Empire. Also, there's the Republic Commando video game from 2005 that features Boss, Sev, Fixer, and of course, Scorch, who has made his jump into canon with his appearance in the first season of The Bad Batch. Now, for Ambry's second question, in Legends, for the most part, there wasn't any meaning to lightsaber colors. Depending on whatever type of crystal or gem that a Force user would find, the lightsaber could be any color of the rainbow except for red. Red was only for Sith blades in Legends that were made from synthetic lightsaber crystals. Now, in canon, lightsaber colors have much more meaning. 
Blue is for the Jedi Guardians. Those were Jedi whose skills with the Force supplement their lightsaber skills. They were the boots-on-the-ground Jedi, for the most part, out in the galaxy, helping the public. Green is for Jedi Consulars, Jedi who have a deep understanding of the Force, who are very introspective, and they continually study the deeper meanings and mysteries of the Force. Yellow is for Jedi Sentinels, Jedi who are a blend of the Guardians and Consulars. This was also the color of the lightsabers for the Jedi Temple Guards. Mace Windu's purple lightsaber reflects the character's temptation and rejection of the dark side. Mace chose to remain in the light. Now, of course, there was a real-world reason for the purple lightsaber, and that is that Samuel L. Jackson asked George Lucas if he could have a purple lightsaber. And it was so he could pick himself out when he was watching the Battle of Geonosis in Attack of the Clones. The Sith Red Blade signifies a dark side user who uses the Force to corrupt and dominate a kyber crystal, making the crystal, quote, bleed. White is for the lightsaber crystals that used to be red, but have been healed and purified by a light side Force user. And finally, there's black. And that is just for the Darksaber so far. That's to signify the ruler of Mandalore. And honestly, because it looks really cool. Thank you very much for the email, Ambry. Now, listener, if you want to be really cool, like Dallas and Ambry, feel free to contact the show. Just send an email to swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. And if you'd like to get your voice on the show, you can record a short message and email it in. Just please record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now it's time for today's book, Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mindor by Matthew Stover. Grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Today's plot summary is going to be a little shorter because this story sits in kind of a unique position in the Legends continuity. It begins in General Luke Skywalker's office. Luke asks a shady New Republic intelligence officer, Lors Gepton, to do him a favor. Gepton is asked to investigate the recent Battle of Mindor, a planet destroyed by a series of gravity anomalies and the radiation emitted by the star in the system. More than 50,000 troops died on both sides of the battle, and Luke Skywalker blames himself. Luke asks Gepton to conduct a thorough investigation, and if necessary, bring charges against Luke for war crimes. The Imperial Remnant is scattered, and the New Republic has set up its new government on Coruscant, but that doesn't mean the galaxy is at peace. Based on the planet Mindor, a warlord named Shadowspawn is waging a guerrilla campaign against the local trade routes. The New Republic leadership promotes Luke to the rank of general and orders him to lead a battle group to Mindor to stop Shadowspawn, while Leia is sent to an unnamed system in the inner rim to negotiate a peaceful end to a standoff between the system's government and a group of Mandalorian mercenaries. When Luke's battle group arrives at Mindor, 
he discovers the system is protected by some pretty weird stuff. Where there used to be two planets, now there's only one, surrounded by a brand new asteroid field, one that hasn't settled into a stable orbit. Hidden throughout the asteroid field, Shadow Spawn's troops have hidden hundreds of gravity bombs, weapons capable of moving the asteroids or any invading starships. During the battle, Luke's flagship, Justice, is ripped into three pieces by one of the gravity bombs. While the two aft sections are destroyed in the asteroid field, Luke is able to seal off the forward section and lands the ship's remains on the planet, saving dozens of the ship's hands. During her negotiations, Leia feels the danger Luke finds himself in. She asks Han to contact her brother, but instead of just calling, Han and Chewie head off to the Mindor system themselves. When learning of Han's departure, Leia convinces Rogue Squadron to take her along to find out what happened to Luke. On Mindor, Luke orders the remaining troops from the Justice to hide in the mountains surrounding Shadow Spawn's lair, while he walks into the belly of the beast. Inside the compound, Luke is taken to Shadow Spawn's throne room, where he finds himself surrounded by dark side acolytes. But something's wrong. The acolytes don't feel right to Luke. It's like the people aren't really there. But Shadow Spawn is there, standing in front of his throne. He threatens Luke, saying that he was trained as one of the Emperor's hands, a powerful dark side user who will take revenge for Luke slaughtering Palpatine and Vader. This story is wrong, of course, but Luke doesn't have time to correct Shadow Spawn before the Darksider starts attacking Luke's mind through the Force. The attack is intense, but again, Luke feels something is wrong with Shadow Spawn. Something about the man isn't right. Luke jumps up to the throne and punches Shadow Spawn in the forehead, stunning the Warlord. But suddenly, the stone around the dais melts around Luke, encasing him in a dark cocoon. Elsewhere in the system, on a nondescript asteroid, one of Palpatine's acolytes, a man named Cronal, looks through the eyes of Lord Shadowspawn. Or, more precisely, Shadow's Pawn. Because there is no Lord Shadowspawn. It's just Cronal who has implanted weird force-sensitive crystals called Meltmassive into the brains of the man portraying Shadowspawn and into Shadowspawn's acolytes. Everything that's happened at Mindor is a farce, a ploy to get Luke Skywalker to the planet. Cronal plans to implant the crystals into Luke's brain to transfer his consciousness into the young Jedi Knight allowing Cronal to live on after his body dies. But Cronal didn't plan on Luke resisting. From inside the stone cocoon, Luke influences Shadow Spawn's mind, destroying the throne room and freeing Luke from his prison. Once free, Luke banishes Cronal from Shadow Spawn's brain. The former warlord says his name is really Nick Rostu, a Force-sensitive man who is familiar with the Jedi from fighting alongside them way back during the Clone Wars. With his plan in turmoil, Cronal switches tactics. 
He can't dominate Luke, but he senses someone else in the system with immense force potential. Leia. Back in orbit, the New Republic's remaining forces continue to fight Shadow Spawn's Imperial forces and the gravity bombs. The outlook is bleak when General Lando Calrissian arrives with reinforcements. They force the Imperials back toward the planet, but not before they start aiming the bombs at the planet's sun. The gravity bombs start setting off a chain reaction, shooting off solar flares, releasing a tremendous amount of radiation in the system. Lando estimates they only have a few hours before the flares reach the planet and eradicate everything. On the surface of Mindor, Luke calls Lando and orders him to flee, but Lando refuses and sends his full forces down into the atmosphere, bombarding Shadow Spawn's compound. Luke says he'll use Shadow Spawn's crown to free the Imperials from the mind control that Kronal has over them, while ordering Nick to find Kronal's asteroid. Luke frees the troops and orders them into the New Republic dropships. They begin to escape the Mindor system when Nick finds Kronal's asteroid and destroys it, killing the former Emperor's hand. Tragically, Kronal's death triggers a kill switch in the crystals embedded in the Imperials. The troops silently drop dead, and just as the New Republic ships jump out of the system, the radiation from the solar flares arrives, leaving the planet Mindor in a burnt husk. The story ends with Gepton showing Luke the findings of his investigation. He says Luke is not responsible for the deaths of all the Imperials. To Luke's dismay, Gepton's tale reads like one of the many holodramas about Luke that have popped up recently, describing him as a swashbuckling Jedi who is single-handedly defeating the evils in the galaxy. Luke is ashamed of the stories, but Gepton tells him that they have a purpose— to bring hope to a galaxy that has been ravaged by war. Time for a break. When we return, I'll talk more about The Shadows of Mindor, one of the most unique stories in all of Star Wars publication. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Aftermath is the beginning of the story following the Battle of Endor. The Empire's in disarray. Now its remaining leaders meet on a distant world to plan a counterattack. How will the Rebellion handle the lingering Imperial threat while trying to start a new Republic? That's Aftermath by Chuck Wendig the first book in the Aftermath Trilogy. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mindor by Matthew Stover. You know, when people talk about legends and sometimes they talk about the weird things that don't really sit right, this is one of the books that pops into my head. It's not that I think this book is bad. It's just that this book feels different 
than most other Star Wars books. The author, Matthew Stover, has said that he wrote this book as an homage to the Star Wars stories that he enjoyed when he was a kid, to the stories that came out before the Heir to the Empire trilogy in 1991. And that's mostly the Han Solo adventures by Brian Daly. Stover says that those were his favorite Star Wars stories when he was growing up. They are pulp magazine stories. They are the Flash Gordon-style stories of the 40s and 50s. They're very episodic. They're very fast. They move. Those are the type of stories that I generally like in Star Wars. But even though I like the stories that are episodic in nature, I still like there being an overarching through line. I think it's a little odd that Stover wrote The Shadows of Mindor to occur in the timeline shortly after the events of the Truce at Bakura and the first arc of the X-Wing stories where the New Republic is now the government of the galaxy. They're still learning. They're still growing. They're not fully entrenched, but they are now the ruling factor in the galaxy. And if you followed Legends for years, when this came out, you already knew what happens to Luke further along in the timeline. You know what happens to Luke after the events of the New Jedi Order, after the events of the Legacy of the Force series. So to go back and write a tale that takes place in the short time frame between the Truce of Bakura and the Heir of the Empire trilogy, I think it confused people a bit when it first came out. Now, what I think Stover does smartly about the story is he plays it coy as to whether or not the events actually take place in the Legends timeline. Of course, we know the books that take place in the timeline after the Shadows of Mendor, but were published much sooner, and none of them reference the events that take place in this story. That's where the character of Lors Gepton comes in. Now, he's only in the prologue chapter and the epilogue chapter. However, it's stated that Gepton is a little shady. He's very clever, but he likes to take advantage of situations. And he doesn't deny this to Luke when Luke says he knows about this. But Luke says that he wants Gepton to look into the story because he knows Gepton is a good investigator. When you get to the end, and Luke is astonished at the results of the investigation that Gepton turns in, he says it makes it sound like one of the cheesy holodramas that have sprouted up since the Battle of Endor. One of the dramas is about Luke 
single-handedly killing Palpatine and Vader in the bowels of the Death Star. They make it sound like Luke is this swashbuckling hero, sort of like Errol Flynn's Robin Hood from back in the 30s. And it makes you think back to some of the things that happen during A New Hope. Do you get more swashbuckling than Luke and Leia swinging across that cavern opening in the middle of the Death Star? So it makes the reader question everything that took place in the story. Is what I just read something that really happened? Or is what I read Lors Gepton's dramatic retelling of the events? Did any of it actually happen? Did Gepton ever meet General Luke Skywalker? Or did Gepton simply write a tale about Luke and option it off to some holodrama producers and just make a ton of money? To reference his love for the old Han Solo adventures from 1979 and 1980, and listener, if you don't know what those stories are, they are Han Solo at Star's End, Han Solo's Revenge, and Han Solo and the Lost Legacy. In this book, Stover even says that Han is aware of the holodramas that have been produced about Luke. He says he loves them, even though they're cheesy, but he says they're fun. Han himself says there's been some of these holodrama stories produced about himself. And their titles follow the same format as those original Han Solo adventure stories. I think that's how Stover writes around the issue of the later books in the timeline not referencing anything that happened at Mindor. Not the 50,000 troops that were killed, not Shadow Spawn or Chronal. It's a smart way to fit this book in between the events of the Truce of Bakura and the Heir to the Empire trilogy. Now, this is not one of my favorite stories and legends. One of the things I think I really have an issue with is Stover's descriptions of the various space battles. I don't think he does that well. As good of an author as I think Stover is, and he's written two of my favorite Legends stories in The Revenge of the Sith novelization and Traitor, one of the books in the New Jedi Order series. I just don't think he's very good with describing space battles and making it easy for the reader to understand. I think... Michael Stackpole, Aaron Alston, Troy Denning, Timothy Zahn. I think they all do a better job describing space battles than what Stover does in this book. 
I also had a hard time sometimes understanding the way the Melt Massive worked. Not the crystals that are embedded in the heads of the Imperials, but it also says that Melt Massive is a rock that can change its shape, can liquefy and reharden. And the way it's described in the caves around Shadow Spawn's lair, it's just a little confusing, I think, at times. At least it was for me to understand exactly the actions that were taking place. But one thing I think Stover gets very right is his characterization of Luke. Giving Luke the characteristics that we remember, especially from especially from The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He's solemn, he's introspective, but there's a little bit of a brashness to Luke. Now, he says a few sarcastic things in this book, and as much as I love Luke, he's right up there as one of my favorite characters in Star Wars, I don't remember Luke as being overly sarcastic in the first three movies. Maybe once or twice, but Luke isn't very sarcastic. Luke is earnest. Luke is kind. Luke is thoughtful. As I said, he's very introspective. And I think Stover does a really good job in this book of Luke's characterization. Luke is very selfless in this book. Always putting himself in harm's way to either protect his friends or to protect people he doesn't know. He doesn't want any of the Imperials to come to harm. He doesn't want Nick to come to harm. Even when Nick is Shadow Spawn, before Luke frees him from the Shadow Spawn visage, So if that is the Luke that you really like, then give this book a try. Honestly, give this book a try if you just want a very fast-paced story that's a little different, that doesn't really have a whole lot of consequences when it comes to the overall legend story. You can decide for yourself if the events of the story actually take place in Legends. I know the way I feel. I think the entire book is Lors Gepton's pitch for his holodrama. Even the prologue and the epilogue. I don't think any of it actually happened. Now it's time to wrap up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Legends Lounge. If you have a question or comment for the show, you can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or a tweet at legendslounge1. Now coming up on the next episode, we're headed back to the prequel era with The Clone Wars Gambit, Stealth, by Karen Miller. And that'll come up on February 17th. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth 
in Legends.